We don't normally do this, but I'd like to give a special shout out to our biggest fan. She's never heard a single episode. Her name is Sherry, and she just celebrated her birthday last week. She didn't tell us how old she was, so we're going to guess 29. Happy birthday, Sherry, from all of us at the Gravity Beard Podcast. Hi, this is Craig Miller from The Ticket, The Morning Musers, and you're listening to the Gravity Beard Podcast. What are you doing up, sweetheart? Rock a bit my thumb. What? Him's nervous because Christmas is almost here. Nervous or excited? Shitting bricks. You shouldn't use that word. Sorry. Shitting rocks. Time to check show. Welcome everyone to the Gravity Beard Podcast. This is episode 33. We're recording today in Studio A. Thank you as always to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support. I'm a fan of shorter podcasts. Most of my favorites are 30 minutes or less. And this show normally fits into the 30 to 45 minute range. This episode is a rare but worthy exception. Today we're joined by our very special guest, Ellen Latson. You may not know her by name, but you would certainly recognize the role she's played. Among others, she was Ruby Sue in the modern holiday classic, Christmas Vacation. She was also Michael Douglas and Ann Archer's daughter in the critically acclaimed film, Fatal Attraction. We'll discuss her experience in those and other roles as she gives us a behind the scenes perspective that viewers rarely get to see. But then, we really go behind the scenes as she shares her experience of trying to transition from childhood acting into normal life. Ellen gives an incredibly candid, in-depth, and personal look at the struggle of that transition. I didn't want to compromise what she shares about her journey just to fit the interview into the template of this show. So, while I did edit out a few things, for the most part, what you'll hear is the raw version of a deeply personal story. Hope you enjoy. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. Hey, Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Let's jump right in. In 1987, you made your acting debut in the Academy Award-nominated film Fatal Attraction. You were only six years old at the time. Tell us how that happened and the role your mom played. So when I was six, my mom was reading the paper, and I grew up in New York. And so she was reading the local paper, and there was an article featuring a casting call for an untitled Adrian Lyne film starring Michael Douglas, and they were looking for girls ages six to eight with no acting experience necessary, but that had great personality, and, and you know, they, they listed whatever the different personality types that they were looking for. And so my mom read that, and she said, oh, Ellen sort of falls into those categories. And she asked me, she said, is this something that you'd like to try? And I said, yeah, sure. And acting wasn't ever anything that we really had thought about. It just was kind of one of those situations that was sort of kismet, I guess. And so we went to the audition. I had just turned six. And actually, I may not have even been six at that point. My mom, I think, was sort of nervous that maybe I, I hadn't uh, met the criteria fully, but it wasn't a big deal for them. And I had the first audition, and they loved me, and they kept calling me back. And so after about a two-month period, maybe, of several callbacks, I finally got the part. And... 
once I got the part, I mean, you know, my, my mom was involved in, in every aspect of, of my career. So she was definitely my rock and, and my provider and, and the person that was there for me most. I mean, you were very young, when, obviously, when you get that role. What were you like as a kid before you got into acting? And what made your mom think it would be a good fit for you? I mean, I was always very gregarious. And, you know, I just I just had the, one of those personalities that I could talk to anyone and everybody loved me and, and I was fun and playful and interactive. And so, I, I mean, when I was three years old, maybe, maybe even younger, my older sister, you know, there was some like holiday performance at her school. So at one point, I think my sister was up there on stage and I kind of broke away from my folks and ran up and got up on stage and started like directing the band. And of course, you know, the, the audience all like went wild and it was hilarious. And, you know, I was just fearless. And after they finished, I turned around and bowed. And then they started playing again, and I started doing it again. And I guess at one point, a guy dressed as Santa came out. And he came and, you know, like, wanted to give me a hug or shake my hand. And I was like, rah! And freaked me out, and then I ran off stage. But that was just an example of how fearless I was and, and how, you know, I could just, like, get up in front of anybody and, and be myself and be entertaining. And so, you know, I mean, I think that all of those things kind of helped shape the idea in my mom's head that this might be something that I might be good at. You ultimately beat out over a thousand other girls for that part. What was that like? I mean, in retrospect, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment. But at the time, I didn't quite grasp the gravity of the situation. You know, I mean, to me, this was just a fun activity that I, that I did. The majority of the interviews that I did the auditions were with other girls. To me, it was just fun going and meeting with the casting directors. And, you know, they, they tried to make it playful and, and airy because, you know, we're six to eight years old and, and a lot of us didn't have acting experience. And so, you know, we weren't used to, to going and auditioning. Yeah, you just didn't know enough to know that you were supposed to be intimidated. Right, exactly. Obviously, that was a very intense film. What was the experience of actually acting in the film itself? It was amazing. Everybody was so wonderful. You know, I mean, as a kid... Everybody is, you know, nice to you and, and they do whatever they can to be accommodating. And, you know, especially on a film like that, that is very intense, you know, they try to kind of like make it a fun atmosphere. My mom always said that she never saw me as focused as I was when I was acting because I really did have this natural ability. And I enjoyed being in front of the camera. I enjoyed taking direction and, and interacting with the actors and, and acting. So they shielded me mostly from a lot of the intensity of the film because it just wasn't involved. But, you know, there were definitely intense moments in filming for me. You did your first audition because because your mom thought it'd be a fun thing for you to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the opportunity started coming in and the decision is made for you to keep going with it. Did that seem like a major change of course for your family at the time? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I... It's funny that you asked that because I don't know that, that we've ever really discussed it in those terms. It just, it's, I guess I just kind of take it for granted that that's how it was because it's something that's been a part of my life for the past 30 years. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it did dramatically change things. You know, my mom was, you know, she's a single mom. My dad was in the picture, of course, but we were living with my mom. And so she had to kind of rearrange her schedule with work and everything else to accommodate my auditioning and, and all that sort of other stuff. But to me, you know, me personally, it just, like I said, I sort of took it for granted because 
I adapted quickly. You know, to to start something so life changing at six years old doesn't really seem so life changing because your life hasn't really begun much yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I was too young to see Fatal Attraction when it came out, but in the same year, you made an appearance in one of my favorite TV shows, Family Ties. Any memories from that experience? Oh yeah, that was one of the highlights of my career. As I recall, I didn't audition for that. The producers called my agent, who then called my mom and said that they, after Fatal Attraction came out, they they wanted me to guest star on you know an episode of Family Ties. And I remember my mom telling me, and I like flipped out. I was so excited. It was one of my favorite shows as well. And I loved Michael J. Fox. I mean, you know, what's not to love? This was, he was right in his prime in between Back to the Future and Back to the Future 2 and, you know, all the other things that he was doing back in in those days. So it it was actually, I think that was my first time out in California. So they, they flew us out to L.A. to film. We were there for about a week, I would say. And it was amazing. You know, it was, it was a whole new experience for me because... At that point, I'd done two feature films, but that was it as far as acting goes. And so filming in front of a live studio audience was a totally different ballgame. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that was my worst performance ever. There are points that I like kind of look at the camera a little bit and, and, you know, I'm smirking because I make a joke and the audience is laughing and I'm trying not to laugh, you know, but I mean, I, I still did a pretty good job, I guess. But yeah, it was, it was amazing. Michael J. Fox was such a dream. He was so sweet and so interactive and wonderful. And, and everybody on the set was really great. I remember really bonding with teeny others. She was a sweetheart. The woman that played my mother, her name is Lee Garlington. She's a character actress. She's been in like everything that you can imagine. And we became really close. And I remember that having a you know real lasting effect because we stayed in touch for years after that. Yeah, Family Ties was, was a new ball game for me. And it was a thrilling experience. Fast forward a bit, and in 1989, you join an ensemble cast to make easily my favorite holiday movie of all time, Christmas Vacation. When was the last time you saw that? I don't think I watched it this year. Probably last year at Christmas, honestly. You know, I don't have cable, and even though it's it's on year-round, because I don't have cable, it, it I'm not, like, one to pop it in the DVD player. But yeah, I probably haven't seen it since, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before it's it's a family favorite of of my family. So, you know, it's it's there are several Christmas movies that we always watch. Christmas Vacation would be one of them. You know, it's funny watching the movies that I'm in because, you know, I mean they're they're great movies. Like I I went back and and watched maybe not the whole thing, but I did watch Fatal Attraction within the last year and it's one of those sort of like out of body experiences, you know. I see myself and I know when I'm coming on screen and and my cues and all those things and Watching it from the, the viewer's perspective is always sort of surreal. Of course, you played the part of, of Randy Quaid's daughter, uh, Ruby Sue, in the film. How did you get that role? So the casting director for Christmas Vacation was the same as Fatal Attraction, Billy Hopkins. And I think Risa Brayman. There's no Risa Brayman Garcia. I think, I think she was on uh, Christmas Vacation as well. But they brought me in for the role. And of course, you know, I mean, I, even though they had worked with me before, I still had to go through the audition process, but I had a leg up because they knew my work and, you know, and they, they loved me as an actress. And so I think that was probably how I got in front of them to begin with. But yeah, I mean, I probably had a couple of callbacks and had to meet with John Hughes and with the director, Jeremiah Chechik and, you know, 
they all agreed that I was right for the role. So that's how I got it. What do you remember about meeting the different cast members for the first time? Johnny Galecki, who played Rusty, he didn't actually get that part originally. The, the original actor was Jared Rushton, I believe his name is, who played the, the sidekick best friend in Big. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Jared Rushton originally had that part, but and I don't know what the, what the reasoning was for, for them going with Johnny in the end. Maybe there was like a schedule conflict or something. But I remember meeting Jared in those early days and then him quickly being replaced by Johnny. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I remember, honestly. No, that's okay. What was it like working with Chevy Chase? Chevy was a really funny guy. You know, he had this this quick wit and this dry sense of humor, but honestly, he was not very social with the rest of, of the cast. When he wasn't working or, you know, when he wasn't called to set, he spent his time in his trailer or, you know, doing whatever it was that he was doing. And, you know, like I remember I was this friendly kid that wanted to, you know, to be friends with everybody and, and I was a relationship builder. And so, you know, I remember going and visiting him and, and his trailer, going and knocking on the door and, and hanging out with him sometimes. But he was sort of disinterested in, in taking part in the family dynamic that was happening with the rest of, of the cast, which was unfortunate. I mean, you, it's, it's not the type of thing that you can detect while watching the movie. Yeah, he did his own thing. But for me personally, he was a sweetheart and, you know, he had three young daughters and, and even though I think that he as an actor is kind of difficult to work with. That was never the type of thing that, that I could detect because, you know, I think he's, he's not a monster. Of course, he's going to be sweet and, and good with kids. So d- describe the experience of filming the iconic scene that most people remember the most between you and him. So what I remember about it was, you know, I was excited to, to have a moment with Chevy. You know, I knew who he was as a kid and, and knew kind of his celebrity and, and his talent. And so, you know, I was, I was excited to kind of have this, this one-on-one moment, which is sort of special because there aren't a whole lot of those in that movie because there are so many cast of characters. And, you know, I remember being told to, you know, at, at whatever my cue was to walk in and he's like standing at the window with his, with his hands up, salivating. And, you know, I'm like, Santa Claus. And, you know, it was great. I mean, it, the whole process didn't take super long. I don't know that we had to do many takes, but he was great and he was really tender and, and you know, he probably gave me some notes and, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it was a hilarious part. And so, you know, like I, and as a nine-year-old, of course, I was stoked to be able to say shit, legit, you know, without getting in trouble. But, you know, I remember the, the cast or the, the crew or whoever was watching laughing along and and you know i mean it was it was fun it was super fun it's always a little shocking to hear a little girl swear in a film but (laughs) but it wasn't the first time for you but what was it a big deal i mean for me it was a big deal because you know i i grew up in a house where where swearing was happening all the time i mean that's where i learned to curse was was from my parents but obviously it was inappropriate for you know a six-year-old or a nine-year-old to to say shit I would get in trouble if I did. And so, you know, the fact that I was, I I had the the green light to say it and to say it multiple times, just, you know, to be able to like get the shot was awesome. Yeah. How fun is that? Super. There's a funny way that fans of the movie have described that scene 
as it relates to Nicolette Scorsese? Uh, I, I think I know what you're getting at. So I get it a lot, and I understand that basically I sort of ruined the fantasy by coming in right at the point where you're about to see her boobs. <laughs> right, right. And so I think that, you know, there are many, many people out there are pissed off at me for having gotten in the way. A lot of tweets from people saying thanks a lot. Right. But that's part of the comedic timing and the beauty of, of that scene. You know, what's funny is, I mean, I've seen that movie dozens of times. And, and even even that at that time when I when it first came out, because I was 15. So that's that's prime time for a scene like that for me. And and I never I never thought about that angle. I never thought about, dang, that little girl just ruined it. Oh, really? I see why people have that conclusion. I just never got there myself. What what other cast members were you close to or enjoyed working with the most on the film? I would say that the person that I was closest with was Cody Berger, who played my brother, Rocky. We spent a lot of time with him and his family. He he grew up in L.A. in the Valley, I'm pretty sure, actually. We would go and, you know, I would, like, have sleepovers at his house and um, hang out with them a lot. And, and But other than that, I mean, I had spent a lot of time with Miriam Flynn as well, who played my mom. She was great. And with Johnny and his family, we were all living in a, in a place called in Burbank that was up the street from, from Warner Brothers Studios called the Oakwood Apartments, which is sort of an infamous place. Johnny and his family were also staying there because I can't remember. I think they were coming from Chicago. I had more than one person tell me to ask you about snots. <laughs> and so, so I'll ask you, what do you remember about him and any idea what happened to him? So there were two or three different snots just because... You're, you're yeah. ruining the mystery for the rest of us. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, totally. Yeah, so there, there, were, there were like two or three different snots. You know, like the snots that they used in the first scene was different than the snots that they used in the squirrel scene. And actually, that snots ended up biting the stunt woman who played Julia Louis-Dreyfus's role. You know, because as I'm sure you remember... The scene kind of ends with him opening the door and the squirrel jumping onto Margot, and then the dog jumps onto her as well, and he closes the door, and that's the end of that. The dog actually bit the stunt woman, which, you know, I'm sure is pretty standard in that sort of a scenario. But, I mean, I don't know that I really interacted with the dogs much. Uh, I probably wanted to because I loved animals and I love dogs. But, yeah, I probably would have only interacted with the with the dog that played snots in the in the scene where we come out of the trailer. And, you know, they put some like weird slimy shit on him because he had to, you know, have the no, it was Rocky that had the skin fungus. Right. Snots, snots had some sort of a of an ailment as well, and so they like put some nasty shit on him. That was well executed. I was very convinced. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Movie magic at its finest. It certainly was. Well, speaking of movie magic, what was it like seeing the house with all the Christmas lights on it? It was cool. It was awesome. I mean, it was super cool to see it lit up like it was on fire. You know, we we weren't there for the for the filming of of when the when the lights go on, which is a pretty iconic part as well. But getting out of the trailer and and you know, I think at that point the from the from the time I come on to the set and into the film, the Christmas lights are a fixture on the house. So, you know, I think that from the time that I was filming, they were always on there. So it was, it was cool. It, the, the set was super bright. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so, so the film was filmed in two places. One was outside of California and Colorado, and then the rest of the film was filmed at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. The house, the, the exterior scenes were actually on a separate property. It was like a ranch that was not far, I think, um, probably still in Burbank, but it's a fake neighborhood. And actually, that neighborhood can be seen in many, many different films. So if you're looking, if you're like facing the house, right, the house to the right is Todd and Margot's house. The house to the right of there is the house that they filmed the home movie scene where, you know, it's like 1954 or whatever year it is. And he's a kid. And it's oh, Christmas. yeah, sure. Um, when, he, when he's looking at the, when he's look, watching the old home movies. Yep. And that house is also Murtaugh's house that blows up in Lethal Weapon 2. Wow. Yep. That's uh, fun stuff. Yep. And I think they may have filmed the burbs there. But it's, it's like a fake neighborhood that's like a, a round cul-de-sac. And across the street from the house, the exterior, because, you know, all the, the houses are, are just exterior. There's nothing on the inside. But across the street from there was you know, were these like tall hedges, which you can sort of see in the part where Randy Quaid is emptying out the septic tank. Another um, classic scene. Of course. Shitter's full. On the other side of those hedges was the pool where we filmed the pool scene. I think that's fun stuff because that's you know those are all experiences that a normal person like myself doesn't get to doesn't get to know about. That's correct. So I wanted to ask you about some other great moments in the film. Tell us what it was like to film the squirrel scene. Tons of running around and activity and and it was always fun when we were all on set together. And it's funny because the one part where we're all in the foyer, and he's talking about trapping, trapping the squirrel in the coat and hitting it with a hammer. And you can hear me scream this like high-pitched, maybe only dogs can hear it sort of scream. I just remember with this, this crush that I had on, on Johnny Galecki, I like always wanted to be near him. And so I think during that scene, I'm sort of like clutching him. You know, it was like my moment to be scared and, and to kind of hang on to Johnny. But yeah, I mean, all the running around, running upstairs, running around the living room and, you know, jumping on the couch and doing all these things. It was, you know, it was it was definitely fun and thrilling to pretend like there's a squirrel chasing us. Yeah, that 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 scene seemed like it was made for for a kid actor. Uh huh. Totally. Besides your portrayal of Mindy Morrison in an episode of The Equalizer, was Christmas Vacation your fondest experience as an actor? (laughs) Um, One of them. Honestly, I mean, I, I had a great time on the set of, of Family Ties, as I said, but the, my time on Broadway, I did, a, uh, I did a Broadway play at Lincoln Center in New York City called Four Baboons Adoring the Sun with uh, Stocker Channing and James Naughton. And that was another ensemble cast with a bunch of kids, including, I guess, what's fun, I was just thinking about him today. Eddie K. Thomas from the American Pie movies, he was actually an understudy on that. He wasn't, he, he didn't have a, a featured part. He was an understudy, but like there were a ton of kids in, in that play that I worked with. And I really enjoyed live theater. It was you know, unlike my experience, you know, however many years, five years earlier, working on the set of Family Ties and not being used to, you know, to a live audience. I was older at that point and had done school plays and things like that. And, and so it was really a challenge, but a thrill to perform in front of a live audience 
five nights a week, six nights a week. It was amazing, and and that cast was really wonderful, and and you know it's a it was a John Guare play, and and one that's sort of obscure. It only ran for like two or three months, if that. But uh, that was that was a highlight of my career as well, just because it was amazing and and thrilling to to be in front of so many people and and to work with such an amazing cast. But yeah, I mean, Chris's Vacation was it, you know, and they were different. Each of my acting experiences were really different. Being in L.A for almost three months and, and working with such an amazing cast and filming such a, a funny movie that was so full of action and, and humor and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was definitely a wonderful, wonderful experience. So at 15, you headed off to boarding school in Vermont. Mm-hmm. When you got done, you decided not to pursue acting. What did you do next? I took some time off. I traveled, you know, I hung out, worked a little bit, but mostly just kind of like, chilled out. You know, it was like the first time in my life that I didn't have any sort of, I mean, since I was six years old, really, that I didn't have any sort of real responsibility or school or, you know, job or anything. So I think I kind of enjoyed my time. At the same time, it wasn't good for me. Uh, My inactivity did not bode well for for my morale and, and my life. And so after taking about a year and a half off, I decided to apply to art school in California. When, when I was like 13 through 15, I went to an arts camp in Connecticut where I learned to blow glass and I loved it. And so when I was kind of like coming off of this time off after graduating, I was like, you know, I want to do something, but I don't know what I want to do. And so I remembered this passion that I had for blowing glass. And so I decided to look to see if there were like any programs around or, you know, any like classes that I could take. And in my research, I found this art program out in Oakland, and I could get a BFA in glass and, and go out there and blow glass. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And so I applied and I got in and without ever having gone to Oakland or to the campus, I basically packed what I could carry and moved out to California and didn't really look, really look back. And so I went to art school for about three years. And the glass program was great, but I also realized that it wasn't really my medium and that it was more so a catalyst to get me out of New York because I, you know, I, I, it wasn't really a good environment for me anymore. And so uh, I was also paying for school by myself and was running out of money and, and realized that I didn't really want to pursue it anymore. So I left school and started working. And yeah, that was, that was what I did. When you, when you got out of boarding school and made that decision, was, was that a, a tough decision to not pursue acting? I think that it was something that had been coming for a while. And I mean, of course, it, it, it wasn't anything that I, that I took very lightly, but I think that, that I intuitively felt that it was what needed to happen. I did go on, a, on maybe less than a handful of auditions after I graduated, and, and it just didn't, you know, I... I felt like a stranger to the industry at that point because I had been so far removed from it for so long. And so rather than sort of push it, I just decided, you know what, it's, this isn't, this isn't my thing anymore. And I decided to, you know, to, to live a normal life that I had kind of already sort of transitioned into. At some point you left the Bay area. Uh, where do you live today? Right now I'm in Michigan. I've been here a few months. 
I came to, to be with my boyfriend who I had been doing long distance with. I was in LA most recently and you know, it's, it's hard doing a long distance thing. And there wasn't really much that was keeping me in LA. Uh, you know, I was doing freelance work and, and, you know, didn't really have much of like a, a career. I had the ability to, to mobilize. And so, you know, and I also kind of wanted to change from LA. I'd, I'd been there almost two years and, and I wasn't really into it anymore. You know, and I'm, I <laughs> classically in my adult life, I've been a nomad. I've been kind of a gypsy. I move around a lot. I've been from the Bay area back to New York, back to the Bay Colorado to LA back to the Bay back to LA and now here in Michigan so you know I think I just kind of got the itch to to move again and so yeah I came out here about three months ago to to be with my man well, that's understandable mm-hmm. so from the time you were in your I guess say your early 20s when you finished school to today you just mentioned that you've moved around a lot during that period but what what kind of have you been spending your time on during that period? Living life, honestly. I mean, you know, working wise, I've jumped around to a bunch of different fields. I worked in hospitality, you know, like bars, restaurants. Um, I worked in hotels. I worked for Marriott for a while. I worked in the travel industry. I worked in, uh, you know, like the, the newspaper industry. I worked for a a small independent newspaper that um, is no longer around in San Francisco called the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Uh, I worked in tech startups for a while. And most recently in LA, I was freelancing doing photo editing for Getty Images in their entertainment division. But, you know, so I definitely jumped around a lot. But in the last year or two, you know, besides doing, you know, those, those other things for work and, and living a life of leisure, going and seeing a bunch of live music and traveling and doing that sort of thing that, that kind of keeps me happy and, and fulfilled. Um, I've also been working on a podcast of my own, uh, which is about the child acting industry. And it's been a labor of love, something that, that I decided to do when I first went down to LA a couple of years ago and you know, it, it's the, the idea took a while to, to kind of take shape and actually like have a real direction and it's still evolving, you know, and, and because it's an endeavor that I'm doing by myself, it's, it's taking a while. And it was something that I had mentioned in the Huffington post article that I did a year and change ago. And at that point was hoping to have launched, but you know, because life is how it is and, and the subject matter itself really is, is challenging. I'm, I'm taking my time with it, but it, it is something that I'm really excited about and have every intention of, of finishing. I did want to say that, you know, my question about asking you about that time period, uh, I didn't want you to think that, you know, my impression or any of my audience impression is that if you weren't acting during that period that you weren't doing anything, you know, significant or no, no, no. Thank you for that. No, it's, it's, I mean, I've just been living my life, you know, and, and trying my best to, to find fulfillment. And, you know, and that's one of the things that I'm sort of exploring in, in the podcast is that, you know, I realized that like, 
I've struggled a lot in my adult life trying to find the thing that professionally makes me happy and, and gives me fulfillment. And I have yet to really find it because I think that acting was the thing that, that really fulfilled me. And even though I can pretty definitively say that it's not something that I would ever want to return to, you know, it would have to be like a really special circumstance for me to, to want to go back to acting. You know, it's, it's entertainment is something that I miss a lot. And I think that that was a lot of the driving factor of my wanting to do this podcast was to somehow tap back into it, but to do it on my terms. So let me press on that just a little bit, if, if you'll allow me to, because you do say that acting was the most fulfilling thing that you've done, but you also say that you're, you've basically said you're, you're certain it's not something you're going to go back to, or, or however you just said it. You were very definitive about that. There's a tension in, the, in saying those two things because they seem not reconciled. Right. They seem contrary to each other. Yes. And I, I get that. And, you know, again, it's like this, this is something that I'm sort of working through presently. Because, you know, for a long time, for 20 years, pretty much after I, I left for boarding school, I sort of shut my career away and didn't really ever look back on it. And, you know, because it's the, I've lived a really interesting life in the sense that I acted for nine very formative years and then all of a sudden I didn't do it anymore and I just sort of slipped into obscurity and, and lived a life of normalcy. And so, you know, I don't know that I ever really allowed myself to kind of mourn the loss of my career and also kind of like really look at, at what it meant, you know, like the whole thing. And I just, you know, and again, like this, this is all stuff that I'm, that I'm exploring in the podcast, but it's, it, it, I've lived this weird sort of double life where, you know, I had this very significant career and then all of a sudden it was gone and it still exists, you know, because these, these with, between fatal attraction and, and crucifixion, you know, they're two very pivotal movies and, and parts that have really like woven themselves into our social fabric. So, I mean, I, I still exist out there. You know, my career is, is still relevant. But I went on to become an adult that just did normal things. And, you know, so in looking back on it, you know, like I, I've lived longer. You know, I, I, my, my life has gone on longer than my career ever did. And I'm an adult now. And, you know, like I think that it's, it's a heavy issue because I think about my acting career and... and the fact that I was a kid when I did it and I'm an adult now. And, you know, I think that there are issues like wondering if, if I ever did return to it as an adult, you know, would my sort of like jaded adulthood and, and view of the world and, you know, whatever, like I wouldn't want that to sort of sully the, the, the very sort of like innocent and pure way that I remember my career and remember acting you know what I mean? Like it's, it's sort of, it's things like that. And I don't, you know, I'm so different now. I'm, I'm an adult. I don't know that I would ever really even be able to, to get back to that place emotionally, that, you know, that place of fulfillment that I had when I was a kid. So that's why 
I say that I pretty much definitively feel like I don't think that I would ever get back into it. But, you know, I mean, I also don't believe in, in, you know, I, I never say never, you know, like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make a stand and say, I am never going to act again, you know, because I can't say that. And if there was an opportunity that were, that was right and felt good, then, you know, I would, I would follow it. But I don't realistically see me going back to New York or LA or, you know, wherever and jumping back into the, the auditioning rat race. That sounds like hell. I have no interest in that. But, you know, if there were a part that were, like, handed to me or something like that that seemed to be a good fit, then, yeah, totally. I would look into it. Yeah, so so I'm listening to you kind of talk through that and uh, kind of processing that. And, and I'm hearing the, the tension in, in what you're describing. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what it sounds like you're describing is there, there's there's two distinct parts of your life, clearly. And then there's kind of this this almost a Grand Canyon of sorts in between. It, it, there's there's no there's no transition if you were to continue acting the difficulty is is that is that one didn't bridge into the other and that if, to do it again you'd have to really do some self-study and figure out where you fit in or what you would enjoy doing being the person you are today versus who you were as a child actor before do i do i get that right yeah i mean i would i would agree with that assessment um like there's no bridge the the bridge is missing totally and i mean that if if I felt like I really did want to to get back into it and, and sort of had a change of heart, whatever, it's like th- that lack of a bridge would only be a hurdle, you know? Like, I'm sure that where there's a will, there's a way. Like, if I really wanted to, I could do it. But, you know, for, for me, the way that I, that I feel right now in my life, it just, it's, you know, they're, like you said, they're, they're two different, two different parts of my life, two vastly different parts. And almost like you're two distinct people. Yeah. Essentially, because there was no transition period in between. So, so it's, if I'm hearing you right, you probably still know people. It's, it's not, it's not the logistics of getting in touch with certain people or kind of getting the ball rolling. To me, what I'm hearing you describe is the, the real challenge is the emotional challenge, which is I have to figure out who I am as a person and what, acting would look like for me as an adult versus what it was as a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I've lived the last 20 years being this quote unquote normal person. And, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still struggling with this because, you know, like I, excuse me, moving down to LA and, and having this sort of draw to get back in entertainment, which then led to the idea of podcast that was coming from a place of, you know, I was, I was living in San Francisco and, and, and working in the startup community or actually not working because I was having a hard time finding a job. And, and, you know, I just was like for years trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And, you know, sort of coming to the realization that like, I did love my acting days and I did love the entertainment industry, but you know, I knew that I didn't want to necessarily get back into acting, but wanted to be involved in entertainment again in some facet. And so that's what sort of helped give birth to the idea of the podcast because it was something that would put me back into, you know, the, the public eye, but it would be again on my terms and it would be showcasing me 
as who I am now, not, you know, like, hey, I'm Ruby Sue, and, and you know, this is, this is who I was, and I'm, you know, like, that's how you remember me. It's like, sure, maybe that's a jumping off point, but, like, that's who I was, but this is who I am now, and this is what makes me relevant. Um, you know, and so that's, that's sort of where, where that comes from, but, you know, the, the acting bit, I don't know, it just, it's, maybe it's a fear of rejection. Actually, I know that it's that in a lot of ways. Um, you know, like I, I left on my own terms, but the majority of child actors don't make that transition. And so, you know, I think that it's sort of a pride issue too, a little bit that, you know, like I, I quit while I was ahead and I could say that I, you know, that I said no to, to acting rather than, than being rejected. And, you know, I had that fear of, of rejection as an adult too, you know, which is sort of ironic because I never had that fear as a kid. I mean, I went on countless auditions and, you know, the, the parts that I didn't get far outweighed the parts that I got, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't an issue. And, you know, so, so as an adult, you know, like I don't, I don't know that I would want to subject myself to that. And not to mention the fact that I'm rusty as hell. You know, like I, I haven't acted in a, in a really long time and I'm sure that if I put the effort into it, I could probably gain that, that skill back and, and, you know, that natural talent never leaves you, but you know, it's, it's just the type of thing that, that overall in, in, you know, when I, when I weigh, when I weigh it all out acting, it just doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. You know, all of those other elements aside, the rejection and, and, you know, the chasm that you speak of, you know, like all that other stuff aside, it, it just doesn't, when I really get to the nuts and bolts about thinking about getting back into acting, it just doesn't appeal to me, you know? And I think that's sort of the bottom line. So, so you can, you can honestly say that it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to you? No, it's, I mean, I, I miss being on set and being in front of a camera and doing all of that. But at the same time, it just, it's, there's something that, that comes along with it that I don't really want, you know, it's, it's the industry and, you know, honestly, like the, the celebrity is, is a lot of what it comes down to too. You know, like I, I enjoy being able to walk down the street and, you know, be a normal person and not have people recognize me, you know, like people do, this happens to me all the time. People see me and they're like, God, where do I know you from? You know, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be like, Troy McClure, like, you may remember me from such films. This is <laughs> vacation, you know? I just, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Like, whatever. You, you, I'm know what, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to patently disagree with you, and I think you absolutely should do Troy McClure in those moments. <laughs> I think that's the exact way that you should handle that. That's exactly what you should do. <laughs> I'll try that next time and I'll, I'll have to report back to you to see what the, yes. <laughs> what I know, it sounds like you've got hesitancy to do that, but I, I would like to press you to, to maybe attempt oh. that at least once. Okay. Well, it's, you know, I'll try that the next time. Um, yeah, I think, I think you will be pleased with how it turns out. That would, it's, that, that would be like a, a Facebook live moment. People, I'm sure a lot oh of people. Oh my gosh, would it yeah. ever, that would be fantastic. Um, totally. But yeah, it just, it's, it's, it, again, this is, this, this is heavy shit. This is a lot of heavy stuff, and, you know, in the end, I, so since, 
since going to LA and, and, and engaging in the in the podcast process and sort of delving into that and now like being leaving LA and being in Michigan and kind of living this life of normalcy again and outside of the LA bubble, it feels comfortable. You know, like I'm I'm comfortable being normal again. I mean I know that I'll never be normal, but I don't feel like the, the wolf in sheep's clothing that I did a few years ago when I was struggling to find my place. And honestly, I mean, you know, the, I don't know how, once the podcast comes out, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how it's going to be received. I mean, I imagine that people would be interested, really interested in the idea of listening to a podcast from the perspective of a former child actor who's talking to other child actors and also really like delving into their own experiences and into their own psyche and, and heart on the matter. Because, you know, first of all, people are obsessed with celebrity and, and child actors and, you know, like the, the behind the scenes stories though people like salivate over that shit. Um, but you know, for me, this is like, it's, it's really a, it's, it's my own story, you know, like this is a, this is a quest for my own truth and people really, you know, they, they latch onto that too. So it's conceivable that if, and when the podcast comes out, it could go gangbusters and kind of like relaunch me back into, into the public eye again. And even that is a mixed bag for me, you know, but it's something that I'm committed to, and regardless of the outcome, I'm doing it for myself, you know? It's the biggest personal endeavor I've ever done. And, you know, it, it's, it's taken a lot of time and effort, um, you know, and, and a lot of, like, soul-searching. It's, it's been really heart-wrenching at times. But, you know, it's, I'm committed to doing it, and... and I'll be proud once it's done. I'm already proud. Yeah, I think you should be. Well, th thanks for going down the road with me and and, yeah. and talking through that and describing that. It's it's immensely complex, and you do have a unique experience and a unique story. And uh, to what it sounds like to me, if I could summarize it, because that's what I have to do, because that's the way my brain works. Mm -hmm. You've been on this journey of self-discovery for the better part of the last two decades. Yep is what it sounds like. And it doesn't sound like, you know, if you're maybe hopefully near the end or what the next chapter looks like, but, but that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I think for anybody and yours is a very unique version because there's not a lot of people that have been in your shoes, but, but I think it's really interesting. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. Thank you. It's, and, and you're right. It, it is. And, and honestly, I mean, you know, I'm the type of person that's, that's constantly looking to self-improve and, and, you know, so I think that that life in general is is all about self discovery. You know, and and but but with specific regard to to this, yes, you're absolutely right. Let's wrap up with some quick hits, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you can just give me brief brief answers to each of these. Cool. So, I was looking at your IMDb IMDb page, of course. Uh, I noticed you have a nickname listed there. Mm -hmm. Do people that have an IMDb page do they fill it out themselves, or does someone else fill it out? I filled mine out, although 
for years and years. And actually, I did that last year because it was so outdated. My mom had done it originally, and then no, so it was like super outdated. Tell everybody what the nickname is that's listed on your bio. It's Bino. Where did that nickname come from, and who in your life is allowed to call you that? So (laughs) when my mom was pregnant with me, my older sister was, you know, three and a half years old or whatever it was. And they explained to her, mommy has a baby in her belly the size of a peanut. And so I was the peanut. And then one day my sister came home from nursery school and was like, how's the bean? I mean, the peanut. And so the bean stuck. So it was Beano, Beanie, and every incarnation that you can think of. But my mom's the only one that calls me Bino, although I do have a friend from college that when we were in school, he looked my IMDb up and he saw that. He saw that Bino was listed there because it's it's been on there for a long, 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 long time. And he's the only other person. My friend Colin calls me Bino. Did you get in trouble in school? Never. <laughs> I, was, I was a good kid. I mean, you know, it's not to say I didn't do bad things. I just didn't really get caught. If you could time travel, where and when would you go? I'd probably go to the 70s. But as, you know, like as an adult, as as me now, um, I mean, there were there's so many places that I'd want to go. I'd love to go to the 60s too. But like, there's something about the 70s that, you know, and I'm watching movies from that era, especially like in San Francisco. I just, I just want to transport myself there. There's like, there's almost like a sepia tone quality to it that I feel like must have been in the air during those days. Are you a sports fan? Yeah, I am. Who do you follow in sports? So my teams, which I grew up with and and will be fans of to my dying day, uh, New York Mets and the New York Football Giants. Okay, so I'm assuming if you're a sports fan, you're going to watch the Super Bowl? Yes, I am going to be watching the Super Bowl. So this this interview will air probably three weeks after the Super Bowl, but I'm going to ask you to predict the outcome. Well, I'll preface it by saying that I'm rooting for the Falcons, but I'm sure that those asshole Pats will probably take the win. <laughs> Spoken like a true New Yorker. Yes, thank you. <laughs> where do you want to? Boy, this is this is a complex question given our previous conversation. But where do you want to be in ten years? Where do I want to be in ten years? Um, I want to be happy. I want to be, you know. Maybe have a family. I'm in a relationship now, but no kids. Um, you know, I just I want to I want to be in a stable place that that has fulfillment and time for fun and yeah, stability is probably the the main thing. Stability and happiness. If you had to live without one of your senses, which one would you choose? Oh God, I hate that question. It would have. I mean. It would have to be hearing, which makes me so sad to say because music is such an important part of my life, but I love food most out of everything in life, so I can't lose my, my sense of taste. Obviously, I need to see. To, I mean, that's, there, there are many blind people out there that I, I tip my hat to them because that has to be a really difficult life, and I would not want to do it. I need my sense of touch and let's see, sight, taste. The only one you haven't mentioned I don't think is smell. Smell, yeah. Smell is directly related to taste, so I would I would need that too. So you would go hearing. Yeah. 
I discount smell. So I've always said smell is an answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have to, yeah, it's true. I mean, I would still be able to taste. It just wouldn't be that like heightened sense. And I'm such like a glutton for food. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. You were willing to talk about your nickname. Tell us something embarrassing about yourself that most people don't know. Hmm. Embarrassing about myself. Um, this is the most embarrassing story that I like to tell about myself. I, I won't go into the whole thing because it's a long, drawn-out story. But We'll do that next time you come on. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, uh, when I was 19 years old, actually I might have even been 18, I went down with the same best friend that I got in trouble with in second grade going to Penicandy, Amanda. We flew down to Fort Lauderdale to visit, to visit my cousin, who's much older than me and went to a bar with my sister's fake ID. You know, it was like a, a club that you, were, you know, had to be 18 to enter, but 21 to drink and ended up participating in a cage dancing contest, which I lost uh, in a very embarrassing manner. But uh, my, my stage name that I chose for myself was Luscious Ellen and the audience was not a big fan of me. But it was also, in fairness, I was sandwiched in between four on either side, as far as like my turn goes, professional strippers. So I wow. definitely, at 18, you know, coming from my like hippie boarding school, I was not wearing anything sexy and they were not feeling me. And so you're, was, you're wearing corduroys and flannel? Corduroys, yes, not flannel. Um, but Timberland boots, which, you know, I was really <laughs> making a fashion statement. Yeah, it sounds like you lost before you ever got in the cage. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty embarrassing. But you know, I I swallowed my pride and did it. I've lost every time I've gotten in the cage as well. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you for trying. Yeah, well, I didn't know any better. Do you think it'd be more traumatic to fall in a well or get kicked by a mule? Fall in a well for sure. Well, that's it. That's all I have for you. All right. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, listen, Ellen, it's, it's been an absolute thrill for me. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the Gravity Beard podcast. It's been my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I was kind of shitting bricks beforehand, but... Yeah, you really shouldn't use that word. Oh, sorry. Shitting rocks. That's better. Thanks. <laughs> How about that? Ellen Latson, you're the greatest. Thanks again. Some good news regarding the search for our next intern. After a long hospital stay and weeks of physical therapy, Lou is finally back on his feet. What was supposed to be a friendly competition instead turned into a bit of a Hunger Games situation. So we decided to shut it down. We've also asked the Bravo Network to go away. With all that Lou's been through, we can't possibly send him home, so we've decided to hire both him and rap battle champion Melinda. I'm a bit concerned she only speaks Latin, but we're going to give it a go. They've both proven they have what it takes to be the next intern for the Gravity Beard Podcast. Oh man, do I have a podcast you need to check out. It's called The Karen and Ellen Letters. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Just go to iTunes and listen to the preview episode. Of the thousands of podcasts out there today, there is not one like this. Plus, I did a guest appearance on an upcoming episode. Seriously, check it out. Episodes 1 and 2 are already available. You can listen to the Gravity Beard Podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you consume podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at TheGravityBeard, and of course we're on Facebook. You can also email us at contactthebeard at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you. 
And please stop by iTunes and give us a good rating and review. It really helps us grow the show. Hey, Liam, what's our theme song? In the mix by Jake Dexter. That's right. And you can find him all over the internet by searching Jake Dexter or Jake Dexter Music. In the intro, we use the song I Still Want You by Everett Almond. You can find his music on the YouTube audio library. And now, we're treating you to Quitting Time by Patrick Lee, CC by NCSA 3.0. Here's what's coming up on the show. Wheelie the Cheetah will join us next week for a mini-sode in our first installment of Odd Jobs. Then, I'll introduce you to Jonathan Hur of the Just a Thought podcast. After that, Bad Date Stories. And don't forget about our upcoming appearances by Dave from Cleveland and our favorite millennial, Ben Hines. It's going to be a busy spring as we quickly approach our one-year anniversary at the beginning of June. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. You remember Ruby Sue? Oh, Oh, my gosh. Her eyes aren't crossed anymore. That's something, ain't it? She falls in a well, eyes go cross. She gets kicked by a mule, they go back to normal. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 